would invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of 1 John. As we continue our study in this book, 1 John, uh, the page is listed for you there in the bulletin. We're going to be looking at chapter 1, verse 5, down through chapter 2, verse 2. 1 John chapter 1, beginning in verse 5, down through chapter 2, verse 2. John says, This is the message we have heard from Him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. If we, have, if we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, and His word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Let's pray together. Our Father, through the work of the Holy Spirit, we pray that you would open our hearts and our minds Help us to see what we need to see. Help us to learn what we need to learn. Help us to believe what we need to believe. We pray, Father, that you would both encourage us and challenge us and that you would equip us as well that as we leave this place, we would be ready to go out as your people to love and to serve you and to rest in Christ. For we ask it in his name. Amen. I remember a time when I was growing up, we were on vacation with uh, my family and some friends of our family. We were at the beach, I think uh, probably about middle school age, uh, somewhere along uh, that time frame. And uh, one night, I don't remember who it was, but one of my friends got the idea that uh, we should go out for a swim in the ocean at night. Now, if you've been to the beach and you've been in the ocean, you know that swimming in the ocean can actually be scary enough during the daylight, especially if you can't see the water, if it's cloudy and dark and you can't see. You might get caught in a school of fish as they're kind of bombarding themselves against you. Uh, you might step on a shell or a crab that's in the sand that you can't see. And you always have that sense that there might be a shark out there somewhere or a large fish that is swimming by. Uh, that's scary enough during the day, but at night, when you can't see anything, that's a really scary situation. The night that we chose to do this little experiment, the sky was thick with clouds. If it's a clear night and the moon is shining, then you might be able to see a little bit and, and maybe even see quite a bit. But this night that we decided to go on this escapade, it was pitch black. You couldn't see a thing from the time that we reached the beach until we were into the water. We waded out into the water about chest deep. We had no idea if there might be a drop off of the next step we might take. We couldn't even really see the waves as they were coming over the top of us. It was both an exhilarating and a horrifying experiment. So much so that I have it crystal clear in my mind even these many years later. Now what made it so scary? 
We couldn't see. We were in the darkness. We had a lack of knowledge of what was around us. And we knew that there were things out there that could hurt us. We didn't know where they might be. We had a lack of knowledge. We had a lack of understanding. We had doubts. But we knew that there were possibly harmful or even evil things out there that wanted to get us. Darkness. It's often used as a motif for what is scary and unknown and threatening, deceptive, evil. And certainly we see that in lots of our literature over the years, do we not? We think about things like Shakespeare's Macbeth or Shelley's Frankenstein, uh, where we see themes of darkness used to, to point to evil and insanity, representing threatening, looming evil. Or something like Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness, one of the main characters who is a sort of the epitome of evil, about to die, staring into the abyss of the afterlife and saying, the horror, the horror. We can think of Tolkien's Lord of the Rings and how evil and death and doom and destruction is represented by Sauron, the Dark Lord, who resides in Mordor, the land of darkness and lies and death. And after all, it's no wonder that so much of our literature would picture darkness as evil and lies and uncertainty and deception and death because we're told about that in the Scriptures. We learn about these things from the very Word of God. Throughout the Bible, we hear the very same message that John is proclaiming here in verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light. And in him, there is no darkness at all. God is light. He is goodness. He is truth. He is pure. He is brilliance and majesty. And the Bible tells us that darkness points to evil and lies and deception and sin and unrighteousness. And Satan himself is the prince of darkness. John is writing this letter to these people, this letter of 1 John, and he's addressing problems that were in the church in Ephesus. These false teachers, as we talked about last week or two weeks ago, these false teachers, these false prophets had infiltrated the church and had taught lies. They had taught darkness. And John is coming back to this ancient truth. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. By doing this, by taking us back here to this ancient truth, John is describing that there is a serious problem. Persistent, habitual, ongoing and unrepentant sin. It's darkness. And God is light. Those walking in darkness cannot be in the light. They cannot be in fellowship with the God of light. It is truly a serious problem. We're meant to feel the weight of it. But even as John shows us the problem, he also tells us about an amazing, unbelievable solution to the problem. And that's what I want us to look at from these verses this morning. Both the problem and the solution that is presented. So first of all, the problem. We have a problem because we sin. 
Now, in order to see and to understand the problem, we have to know what the standard is. And John begins with the standard. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. That is the standard. He gives us this clearly. It's a clear standard that God is light. God is holy. He is beautiful. He is perfect in all of his works and his judgments and his character. God is truth. His word is truth, and in him there is no deception. There are no lies. There, are, there is no evil. There is no sin. He is perfect and pure and holy and majestic light. And as we start to meditate on that truth, on that standard, we begin to see the problem. And he gives it to us in verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie. And do not practice the truth. There's the problem. The standard is clear. And we have broken the standard. We walk in darkness. Apparently the false teachers that had infiltrated the church were teaching that it was okay to sin in your body and still have fellowship with God. Your sin in your body didn't impact your fellowship with God. And John said, that's not true. It is a problem to walk in darkness because God is a God of light. This word that John uses here for walk is a very common New Testament word in the Greek that refers to one's lifestyle. Paul uses it in Ephesians 5 as he's speaking to the Ephesian people. He says that they are to walk in love. That they are to have a, a lifestyle, an ongoing, ongoing habit of love in their life. So walking in, dis, in darkness... Is habitual, persistent, ongoing, unrepentant sin. John is talking about actual sins that we commit. But he's talking about persistent and unrepentant sin. And he says it's a problem. Because to think that we could live that way with no consequences is a lie. God is light. We can't live in unrepentant, persistent, and habitual sin and think it doesn't matter to God because it does. We have a problem because we sin. But the problem's actually worse than that. John goes on in verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So apparently... These false teachers were teaching that by nature, we are not sinners. Yes, we might do some bad things from time to time. And we might make some mistakes on occasion. And we might be in error at times. But it's not because of anything at our core. It's not because of our sinful, that we have a sinful nature. And John says, to think that way is to deceive yourself. And there is no truth in you. The Bible clearly teaches us that we are sinners, not just because we sin, but also because we're born with a sinful nature. Paul says in Romans 5, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. One trespass led to condemnation for all men. He's talking about Adam and Eve in the garden, our representatives in the garden. When they fell, when they sinned, all of mankind fell and sin in them. 
And as a result, every human being since that time, with the exception of one, the Lord Jesus Christ, is born with a sinful nature. Or as David points out in Psalm 51, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. We have a problem. Not just because we sin actual sins in some persistent and unrepentant way, but also because we're born with a sinful nature. And to deny that truth, John says, is to deceive ourselves, to be deceived. And there's no truth in us. We have a problem because we sin. We have a problem because we have a sinful nature. But it's even worse than that. We have a problem because our sin disrupts our relationship with God. You can see that in verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. And again in verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His Word is not in us. When we walk in darkness... We cannot be in fellowship with the Lord. Our fellowship is disrupted, John says. Now, I want to be very clear. If you're a Christian, you have been united to Christ by faith. And your status is now as a is is that of a redeemed child. And that never changes. But if you are a Christian who is living in unrepentant and persistent and habitual sin, then your fellowship with your father is disrupted. Listen to what David said in Psalm 32. For when I kept silent, when I when I didn't confess my sins, when I didn't repent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long for day and night. Your hand was heavy upon me. Or listen to what Isaiah says in Isaiah 59. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities, your sins have made a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. It's not that God is incapable of saving us. It's not that God is incapable of hearing us. But our sins, our sin has made a separation between us and God. And our sins have hidden His face from us. Walking and living in unrepentant, persistent, ongoing sin means that our fellowship with the Lord is disrupted. You can see that again from verse 10. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar. To deny that we sin, to deny that we have a sinful nature, to live in unrepentant sin and claim that we have fellowship with God is, in effect, calling God a liar. Why is that the case? Well, because God has clearly said in His Word that we do sin and that we do have sinful natures and that we don't have fellowship with Him if we're walking in darkness. Be reminded of what the Scriptures say All over the place. Romans chapter 3. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood and their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Or what the psalmist says in Psalm 14 and Psalm 53. 
They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who who act correctly, who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Or what Ecclesiastes 7 says, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Isaiah 53, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. Isaiah 64, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. To deny sin, to deny that we have sinful natures, to live unrepentant, to live in, un, in unrepentant sin and claim that we have fellowship with God is to call God a liar. He has clearly said that, in fact, we do sin and do have sinful natures and we can't live in unrepentant sin and have fellowship with him. Now, I want you to think about the effect of calling God a liar. Think about the effect of that. To call God a liar is an effect to say God doesn't exist. That there is no God. Why? Because God is light. God is truth. It is his very character. It's impossible for God to lie. And to say that God is a liar is to claim that God is not God. That there is no God. Now, I feel fairly confident saying those of us in this room, those of you online, none of us would ever say, I don't sin. I don't have a sinful nature. And yet, I would just ask you to reflect on how often our actions actually say those very things. When we get into an argument, when we get into a conflict with our spouses, with our children, with our parents, with our students, with our teachers, with our bosses... How easy is it for us to say the problem is all with them? It's their issue. I haven't done anything wrong. It's all them. And at that moment, what we're failing to admit and failing to recognize is that I am a sinner. I have a sinful nature. And we have an unwillingness to search our own hearts and our minds and actions to see how we've contributed to the conflict. When we find ourselves in conflict or an argument with another sinner, it's appropriate to discern what the sin is that I'm bringing to the table. How my own sin is part of the problem. Even if it's a tiny part. We have a problem because we're, our sin disrupts our relationship with God. We have a problem because we sin and go against the standard of God as perfect light. We have a problem because we have sinful natures. And brothers and sisters in Christ, we need to feel the weight of how serious the problem is. Sin is serious. Not being in fellowship with the Lord is serious. And we should take it seriously and feel the weight of it. God is light, and in Him no darkness at all. And yet so often we walk in darkness, even if we don't act like we do or say that we do. But 
Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God because there's a solution to the problem. And John gives us the solution, the first part of which is in verse 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Here is the first part of the solution. We confess our sins. Now, what does that mean? It means to own up to everything that we do that violates God's word or fails to do what it says that we should do. Again, think about David as a model for us in Psalm 32. David says, I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover up my iniquity. Or again in Psalm 51, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, Lord, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. That's what confession looks like. It is admitting our sin. It is owning up to it. It is repenting of it and turning away from our sin. And that's not to be done just once. It's to be done all the time. Every time that we become aware of our sin and even when we don't become aware of it. As Martin Luther said, all of life is to be repentance. So I would ask you just to reflect how you're doing on that. How are you doing in confessing your sins to the Lord? Repenting. Turning away from them again and again and again. And turning back to Him. Is it just something you do on Sunday when you come and worship and we get to that point in our liturgy, the order of our service, and we walk through our need to confess and we do confess and we hear God's grace and mercy? Is that the only time that you do that? God is calling you to be a person of confession. That's part of the solution to the problem, that we confess our sins. And notice what he says, what happens when we do it in verse 9. Verse 9 says, if we confess our sins, He, God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When we confess our sins, God forgives us. The debt, that, that, the debt we have with God that has been caused by our sin is removed. When we confess our sins, God cleanses us. The stained record that we have because of our sin is removed. When you do that for the first time, you are justified. You are declared righteous. You're given the status of an adopted child of God. But even as Christians, when we go and confess our sins, God forgives us. God cleanses us and then restores the fellowship with Him. And I want you to notice what it says here. God is faithful and He's just to do that. God has promised in his word that he will forgive the sins of his people through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when we go to the Lord and we confess and we repent, we have the promise that God is faithful. He is faithful to his promise to forgive us. And we're told that he is a God of justice. And so if we are in Christ, it would be unjust for God not to forgive us. Because our sins have already been paid for in full by Jesus dying on the cross. And so God is not only faithful to his promises, he is just to fulfill them when he hears our confession. So we confess, we own up to our sin, we confess it to the Lord. And because God is faithful and just, he forgives us and cleanses us 
But I want you to notice that John also tells us how that happens. How is it that when we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us? How does that happen? Well, he explains that to us in the first two verses of chapter 2. He speaks to them very tenderly and he says, "My, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Here is the first way that God brings forgiveness and cleansing of our sins. It is because He has given us an advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous one, who is worthy to be our advocate. Some of you know that word advocate in the Greek is the word parakletos. Literally means one summoned to assist another. A mediator, an intercessor. And John used the same word in his Gospel of John to describe the Holy Spirit. And here he takes it and applies it to Jesus. As Jesus appears to our Father in heaven as our advocate, as our intercessor. He goes to the Father and he makes a case for why we deserve to be forgiven and cleansed. Why it is just to forgive us. And what is Jesus' case based on? Well, that's what he tells us in verse 2. Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Jesus is the propitiation. He is the helosmos. He is, he is the one who is the propitiation for our sins. It's such an important word. Literally, it means to turn the turning away of wrath by an acceptable offering. The turning away of wrath by an acceptable offering. Jesus is our propitiation. He is the acceptable offering that turns away the wrath of God through His perfect love and obedience to His Father, through His sacrificial death on the cross, and through His resurrection from the grave. He has made an offering to God that paid the debt that we owed and turned away the deserved wrath of God from us. On the cross, God's wrath was poured out on Christ so that God's people will never experience it. And I want you to notice what John says here. Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. Present tense. It's not just that He was in the past. Jesus is. It's an ongoing present tense sense. Now that doesn't mean that Jesus is continually offering Himself on the cross, but what it means is that the one-time event of His redemption on the cross has eternal consequences. His one-time act has both present and future impact for us. We have an advocate who at this very moment is interceding with the Father for us because of the act that He has completed dying on the cross. God's wrath has been, is, and always will be turned away from us because of Jesus. That's the first part of the solution. We confess our sins And we know that God is faithful and just to forgive us because of our advocate propitiating our sins. The second part of the solution is that we have to believe God's promises. Again, back to verse 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us. 
He is faithful and just to forgive us. And notice that's true not just for the ones that John was writing to. As he says at the end of verse 2, this promise is for God's people in the whole world, in all of time, and that includes us. This promise is ours. God is faithful to his promises, to his people, and he is just to fulfill those promises. And so if you are in Christ, this promise is for you. You have an advocate with the Father who has turned away God's wrath from you forever by taking it upon himself. That promise is made to you. So believe it. Believe it in the moments when you are tempted to doubt God's love and care for you. Believe it in those moments when the Lord feels distant. Believe it in those moments when you are once again tempted to give in to that familiar besetting sin. Believe it in the moments after you have given in to your sin. Remember the promise made to you in Christ and let the truth of that promise, the love that is displayed on the cross, the grace of the gospel, drive you back to your father and move you to confess your sins and to repent and turn away from your sin once again. I recognize that for some of us, this is one of the hardest things to do. To actually believe that this promise is true for us. But brothers and sisters in Christ, here it is in black and white. This is God's very word. It was true 2,000 years before John wrote it. And it's true 2,000 years after John wrote it. And for all eternity. Believe it. The third part of the solution. We must walk in the light. Again, go back to what John says here at the beginning of chapter 2. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. There's the goal. That's what his hope is. That's what, that's what his desire for them is. That they may not sin. That's the goal. Of course, we're never going to achieve that goal on this side before Jesus comes back. But that's the goal. And again, he, he gets at it again in verse 7. If we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us. That's our goal, that we would walk in the light, that we would never sin, although we'll never get there in this life. That is to be our goal. That is to be what we are to shoot for. And again, remember what that means. The, the word walk there means uh, an ongoing lifestyle. As God's people, we are called to commit ourselves to pursuing an ongoing lifestyle of growing in Christ's likeness, growing in holiness. To walk in love, to walk in truth, to walk in purity, to walk in holiness. That we would be more and more like our Savior in His love. That we would be more and more like our Savior in how He lived and how He thought. And what that means, brothers and sisters in Christ, is that as God's people, as Christians, we must never say, this sin that I struggle with will never go away. I'll never be free of it. So I just have to figure out how to live with it. We are called to every day pursue walking in the light and to put to death the old man in the flesh and to put on Christ. And so I would ask you to reflect. What are the areas of darkness that you need to flee from? What, what, are the, what are the ways that you need to be walking in the light this week? And I want you to notice lastly, 
what this leads to. As we would walk in the light, what does he say in verse 7? As we walk in the light, it leads to fellowship with one another. There's a sense in which walking in the light and leaning against our sin and pursuing holiness and confessing our sins and turning again to our Father in heaven, there's a sense in which we do that in the fellowship and the community of God's people. We're not meant to go through all of this all by ourselves. God created us with the need for fellowship with brothers and sisters in Christ. We need one another. So if you're part of the TPC family in God's providence, he's put you in this family. This is your fellowship. This is your community. How are you connecting yourselves to it? And if you're visiting with us today, if you're online in other parts of the country, you too need the fellowship of God's people wherever you are. You need to get connected to the local community of God's people if you aren't already. So John gives us the problem. The problem is serious. It is weighty and we are meant to feel its weight. We sin in our thoughts, our words, our actions. We are born with sinful natures. Our sin disrupts our fellowship with God. And to deny it is to lie, to be deceived, and to not have the truth in us. But the solution to the problem is unlike anything anyone would ever have thought up. And it is good news indeed. We confess our sins, we repent of our sins, and we get the forgiveness and the cleansing of our unrighteousness through an advocate who propitiates our sins, who turns away the wrath of God. We believe God's promises because He's faithful to keep His promises and just to fulfill them. And we pursue walking in the light as He is in the light, pursuing an ongoing lifestyle of growing in holiness and in the fellowship of God's people. Let's pray together. Father, it's a dangerous prayer for us to pray. But we would pray humbly and yet boldly that you would show us our sin. Reveal it to us. Show us those areas, Father, where we need to confess our sins. Make us aware of the ways that we are living in persistent sin. Bring it to our minds. Bring it to our attentions. Not that we would wallow in the guilt, but that we would feel the weight of our sin and then we would turn to you to find our rest in the gospel. Help us, Father, to see our sin for the sake of confessing it and hearing of the forgiveness that is ours in Christ the cleansing of our unrighteousness because of Christ Jesus taking your wrath that we so deserved. Make us people of light. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.